God is using everything in our lives, even those difficult trials you're going through. Hear all about it next on Abounding Grace. This is amazing grace. Maybe you share this common experience. You go through something that you classify as one of the most difficult things you've ever been through. Then, years down the road, you look back on it with eyes to see all that God did in your life at that particular time. He used it in a big way. Well, today on Abounding Grace, Pastor Ed Taylor is going to show us that God really uses everything in our lives. We'll see that in Daniel's life as we turn to Daniel chapter one. I think you'll be encouraged and inspired as you hear about Daniel's response to life-altering pain. We read these passages in the first few verses literally in a matter of seconds. But this was a life-changing, life-altering moment in the life of Daniel, let alone the nation of Judah, let alone Daniel's friends. In a moment's time, life was forever altered. And now, in the rest of the book of Daniel... With this backdrop, in the rest of the book and our study in Daniel, will be the unfolding picture of Daniel's response to life-altering pain. Given to us as an example and as an encouragement. In Psalm 38 verse 15 it says, For I'm waiting for you, O Lord. You must answer me, O Lord, my God. So Jehoiakim is given into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. And he took some of the articles of the house of God into his land. Pick up with me in verse 3. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of the eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and of whom they might teach the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. So the instruction was clear. Bring me the best and the brightest. Bring me the cream of the crop, the ones that have the greatest potential. Because in conquering the land and taking captive these young men, Nebuchadnezzar was accomplishing a couple of things. Number one, these young men would be trophies of Babylon's conquest. They would be forever a reminder that Nebuchadnezzar was king in his mind, capital K. Secondly, they would become ambassadors as they returned to their homeland with their Babylonian culture and traditions with them. Thirdly, it would keep the nobles in Jerusalem under control as the threat of having their children taken away would always be before them. They'd be a reminder, sort of like crucifixion for the Romans was, don't mess with Rome. Having these bright young men trained 
And serving Nebuchadnezzar would serve as a warning, don't you mess with Nebuchadnezzar or your kids might be next. The devil always likes to intimidate and threaten. I don't know if you've ever been personally threatened. I mean, literally in a personal way. Maybe your life was threatened or someone threatened to do something to you, but it can shake a person. It can shake a person where you are having now to process whether this threat is true, what's going to happen, and it's an it's a undermining of, of our faith. But the devil is always threatening. He's always trying to bring out these threats to undermine our faith. While, at the same time, he's also wanting to undermine our understanding of who God is. You see, the goal for these young men, the goal was to take Israel's best and train, turning them into trained and learned Babylonians. It was part of the brainwashing process. The world in which we live and the culture in which we live has a belief system that is contrary to the Bible. The world and culture, and I don't just mean Western culture. When I use the world, I, I mean culturally, but also globally, is an anti-God or using the word of the scriptures, an anti-Christ philosophy. Anti can mean a couple of different things. Number one, when you think of antichrist, it can refer to as against Christ. And some things that are taught in culture are just immediately up against the teachings of Jesus Christ. I mean, just in, it's in the face of righteousness. I received a note this week of, of, a, of a young person in middle school that just felt like that they were dumb for believing in God because of the peer pressure that they're going through. Why? Because the culture comes against God. Now, you and I live in this culture. We breathe in this culture. We work in this culture. We shop in this culture. The culture has its effect on us as well. But it's not just against. The second meaning of anti is in place of. So when you think of antichrist, whether you're thinking of the antichrist who's to come in the book of Revelation coming up uh, as in the near future as we're living in the end times. But remember John said in 1 John that there are also many antichrists. The spirit of antichrist. This sense of, man, the things that are being thrown at us are wanting to come in the face of our faith and then replace it and displace it. And so there's peer pressure. It's not just the kids aren't just feeling peer pressure. Peer pressure goes on into adulthood. There's the pressure of, of having to accommodate into our culture and having to learn. You've got to learn how to work in this culture, how to navigate in this culture, how to use the money of this culture, but for these young men, you can see in verse 6, he has friends. It says, among these were the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hanani, Mishael, and Azariah. So these are the four men that are focused on in the book of Daniel. There are at least three things that the culture wanted to do to them that the culture wants to do to us. Number one, they wanted them to think differently to think differently. So they were going to teach them the language and the idolatry of the Chaldeans. They wanted them to think. That's what it says in the end of verse 4. They might teach the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. They wanted to teach them the language because the 
fastest way to assimilate into a culture is to learn the language. As we prepare and send missionaries out into other cultures with other languages, a large part of their time is spent learning the language. And they learn it faster, in many cases, by just jumping in and studying it, speaking it, and living in it at the same time. So number one, they wanted them to think differently. Number two, they wanted them to worship differently. They wanted them to worship differently. You notice, and by the time they get to, ver at the end of verse 4, it wasn't just language, but literature. And now literature wasn't just the history of the country, but it was also the worship of the country. And so they wanted them to have a different worship mentality. We'll get to that in a second because it will jump in as their names get changed. But before we get there, let me come back to number two because I went out of order. Secondly, they want them to live differently. So not only think differently, but secondly, they want them to live differently. Third, they want them to worship differently as we'll get to that in a moment. Hold your places here. Go over to Romans chapter 12. Because the same three things are happening to you and to me. The world system that we live in wants you to think differently. And the phraseology that is very popular today to help you to understand this is the phrase worldview. Worldview. Don't be scared by that because a worldview is simply how you view the world. It's very similar to me and this pair of glasses. Because when my glasses are not on my head, I cannot see you. You're all very good looking right now <laughs> because I can't see you. Uh, the lens of my life is off of my head and I cannot see you clearly. I can only make out shapes. By the end of the day, my, my eyes are very blurry and I can only make out shapes and I can tell that there are people here and I can see some of the LED lights in the room, but that's about it. But when I place my glasses on my, whoa, you're even better, than I, better looking than I thought. When I place my glasses on, I have a glasses view of this room. I see everything through my glasses. As a believer in Jesus Christ, we have been taught to see everything through the lens of the scriptures. We call that a biblical worldview. A biblical worldview. We tend to take everything that we see, and this is a habit we want to develop, everything that we see, everything that we hear, everything we experience, and like the Bible says, test all things, hold fast to what is good. And we study the Bible for the sake of developing a biblical worldview because the Bible gives to us God's heart on the matter, and we want God's heart. But we live in a culture that is, we, we spend way more time in this culture. We spend may, way more time with the thoughts and teachings of this culture, whether we acknowledge or not. So the culture that you're in is actually a secular worldview. A secular worldview diminishes or decimates God or a view of God and puts on another pair of glasses that you see everything well, actually, you can even develop the worldview with another word, secular humanism. Secular humanism. Secular speaks of the world without God. Humanism speaks of you're the sinner. 
of the universe. And that's how you have been trained. If you grew up in this world, you grew up in the public school system, you were educated in the public school system at every level, all the way into getting your doctorate. This is the worldview that was used, you know, depending on what, maybe you went to a Christian university perhaps, or like in our kiddos in our school here, we teach them ABCs with a biblical worldview. We explain things to them with a biblical worldview. If they skin their knee on the, on the playground, we pray for them and remind them that God is the healer and that he's going to heal. And he created the body. Like there is a biblical worldview in pockets of this world, like we are experiencing one right now. But that's a pocket within the overall secular humanistic worldview. And the doctrine... Doctrine is another word for teaching. While our doctrines are derived from God's word, the doctrine of the secular humanistic worldview is humanistic evolution that displaces the word of God and any need for God. So remember, especially if you guys wear glasses, you realize if you choose to see everything through the lens of the word of God, you'll see purpose and meaning in what you face. You'll receive hope when there's hopelessness. But what they wanted them to do is to not only think differently, they wanted them to live differently. But notice, I asked you to go to Romans chapter 12 and pick up with me, if you would please, in verse 1. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. You could say Romans 12, 1 is like putting on the biblical glasses. Hey, present yourself to God. You're facing a trial today, present yourself to God. You're worried today, present yourself to God. You are having difficulty, don't like where you're at, don't like the state of your life, don't like, hey, present yourself to God. It's a reasonable service. It's holy and acceptable. And that's going to lead to verse 2. Don't be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your, what does your Bible say? Minds. So Nebuchadnezzar's astute here. The, the Chaldeans were very, very intelligent. And they're going right after the mind. What do you think they're going after in your kids' lives? The mind. What do you think they're going after in your life? The mind. Don't be conformed to this world. Be, be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. How do you know the will of God? How do you know what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God? Well, you put on your biblical glasses and you live with a biblical worldview, testing all things, holding fast to what is good, presenting yourself to Him. You are on the way just in your time today. Whether you're listening to this uh, on uh, social media somewhere, or you're here in the room, or you're downstairs, one or the overflow, you are on the way. But it's not a one-time event. Like, it's not 90 minutes of church attendance, and that's going to renew my mind. Because some of you, as soon as you get into the car and turn on the radio, as soon as you turn the key, as soon as you push the button for your car, I, I, it's even hard for me to say this, but country music is going to play in your car. <laughs> and it's going to ruin your mind. What are you laughing at? Or you might be going to the market and your eyes see something and it provokes a temptation. Or you might be going to work and you work in such a, an environment that's very difficult for you to maintain your faith and to trust in the Lord. 
and it just stirs up, and, and you're going to walk out the doors, you're going to face something, you're going to pick up your kids, you're going to face something, and, and it's a challenge of what will you believe? Because here's the truth. What you and I believe dictates our behavior. That's why if you give some time to watch somebody's behavior, you can walk up to them and tell them, I know what you believe. You go, yeah, you don't know about me. I've been watching you for a while and I can see that you say one thing with your mouth, but your actions tell me you believe something differently. And I know for certain that most, if not all of you, have spotted a hypocrite at one time in your life. Yes? No? How did you do that? Their behavior betrayed their words. Or their words betrayed their behavior. Think differently. Secondly, live differently. How did they do that? Notice, coming back to Daniel, they wanted them to live differently by eating different. Now they get to eat the best of the best of the king's delicacies, verse 5. And the delicacies, we, we aren't for sure what... We, we don't know for sure. We have some history that we looked up uh, that what would be at a, at a Medo-Persian table, things like this. This is what would be set before the king at the Medo-Persian table. Every day, 400 sheep, 300 lambs, 100 oxen, 30 horses, 30 deer, 400 geese, 300 pigeons, yuck, 600 small fowl, 750 gallons of the finest wine, 75 gallons of new milk, 75 gallons of sour milk, and 22,000 loaves of bread. This would feed the king, his servants, his family, his harem, his guests, the wise men, etc. A lot of food, a lot of luxury. But besides getting them to eat, don't forget Daniel and his friends' culture. Don't forget the biblical worldview of their day were the Levitical laws and the restrictions on what to eat. Eating is important in God's sight. Today, eating isn't important for our righteousness. It's important because we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. But for Daniel and his friends, the way they ate was an act of worship. And there were restrictions. They grew up and was trained, were trained with restrictions on what they... So what does Nebuchadnezzar do? He's going to train their mind. Three years of this, train their mind. But now he also wants them to eat contrary to the Levitical law. He wants to undo the way they were raised. As many kids, when they graduate high school, the first course, the first class in college, the first day, some professors is going to call out the Christian in the class and make fun of them in front of everyone else, going right after their fate from the get-go. Right, and automatically, they're just in a new environment, a whole new world. It's so difficult for them. They go right after and undermine their entire upbringing. But it wasn't just that. You can't miss this. If the Medo-Persians at their table had 750 gallons of the finest wine, notice what he wanted in verse 5. He wanted them to drink the wine that he drank. They wanted them to live differently completely. And I believe this was an insight of he wanted these teenagers drunk, which would make them easier to control and train, to get them under the influence and out of control a little. The worst thing I did when I was 12 years old to that point in time was take my first drink of alcohol. 12 years old. It wasn't much. As a matter of fact, what we found was simply a can of beer. And we split it three ways between the three of us because we thought we were so bold and so brave. 
I really don't know what happened to the two other guys. I didn't really follow their life much after that as we went off to junior high school at a different school and then we went off to high school in a whole different school. I don't know what happened to them, but I know what happened to me. That one drink flipped a switch inside of me that didn't get turned off until I was 23. And it was not turned off by my personal choice. And it wasn't turned off by being in jail. And it wasn't turned off by, by um, stopping at one or, you know, it went off into drugs and it was continued to escalate. It was only turned off by the power and the work of the Jesus Christ in my life. And so I don't know. I don't know what your story is. And some, some people will, will call as we receive the call on the radio today. What do you, what's your opinion about marijuana? What's your opinion? I'll tell you. I'll tell you that every day, every time you ask, stay away from it. I don't care what's legal. I don't care now that you can get some magic mushrooms. They will destroy your life. Mark my words. Write it down. Put it in the back of your Bible and say, Ed's an idiot. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He's a legalist. He doesn't care. What about freedoms? Just write it down and put it in the back of your Bible. And when you're in trouble, call me because I'll go visit you and I'll encourage you in the Lord. And I'll come alongside of you and say, hey, I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. You didn't heed my warnings, but you can today. The resistance of Daniel and his friends would be taken to an all-time low if they were drunk. And it was Nebuchadnezzar's goal to get them drunk. If you haven't noticed, in our culture, in our society, that's the goal. Get the, get the public to be out of their senses. Take the public and give them what they ask for. Remember in the Psalms it says that God gave them their request, but sent leanness to their souls. And there's just some things that we want that are not good for us. There's just some things that we desire that can be used against us. There's just some things, substances, that can take control of our body and our minds. And for some, and I don't know who, and this is what I tell parents, says, well, you know, it's okay for me. I can handle it. And, and it's fine with me, Ed. You don't understand. And, and again, you know, it's not, it's not my life you're living. It's, I have already lived my life and I made enough mistakes. It's your life you're living. But I always like to ask, which one of your kids can't handle alcohol? Oh, Ed, how could you say that? They're just little kids. I'm like, but following your example, they're going to walk right behind you. And the example you give them, how do you know what your kids can handle and what they can't? Wouldn't it be better to present them to the world as adults, clean, pure, righteous, submitted to the Lord, following him, as strong as they can be in a culture that's only getting darker and only becoming more wicked and evil? Don't miss this. We're talking thousands of years ago. Thousands of years ago, alcohol was used as a tool to take advantage of kids, teenagers. And that carries on into the present, that's for sure. It's so much better to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit rather than alcohol or some other controlled substance. Well, thanks for studying alongside of us on Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. If you'd like to hear this message or previous studies in the series, stop by AboundingGraceRadio.com or listen to us through our app. Search for Calvary Aurora in the App Store or Google Play. We also offer a podcast, and look for that where you like to listen to your favorite podcasts. 
Each month, we try to pick out a book that we believe can be of some help to your walk with the Lord. And this month, it's Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, authored by Mark Rogop. Now, this book seeks to restore the lost art of lament and will help you discover the power of honest wrestling with the questions that come with grief and suffering. We'll send you the book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, when you support Abounding Grace today with a gift of $25 or more. Request it right now when you call us at 877-30-GRACE. That number again is 877-30-GRACE. And please remember, we are listener-supported. Simply put, that means we look to our listeners to help us with the cost of being on the radio. Large or small, your gift will be greatly appreciated and used to point people to the abounding grace found in a relationship with Jesus and through the study of His Word. You can donate to the ministry at AboundingGraceRadio.com or again, call 877-30-GRACE. We continue to live stream our services at Calvary Church in Aurora, Colorado. Watch us through our app, website, or on YouTube. That's Saturday nights at 6 p.m., Sunday mornings at 8.45 and 10.45. Study the Word in the middle of the week, too, Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. We can tell you more about us at calvaryco.church. Glad you've taken time out today to study the Word with us. Blessings to you. This is amazing grace. Abounding Grace is brought to you by Calvary Church in Aurora, Colorado.